0: This is a message from the Australian Government. You're listening to Climactic.
1: There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. The show this July was the single
2: hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's
3: the rate that's a great concern. And oh,
4: what do you build so, that rate down to?
3: Oh, it's human activity.
4: We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act, but I say the
5: will to act is itself a renewable resource.
6: Hello and welcome to this special Climactic Bonus Series. We are running across the month of February in the summer of 2020. Joining me today is a Climactic Special Correspondent, Contributor and Advisor Gretchen Miller. Hello. 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 Gretchen. Hello, hello there. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners, Gretchen?
0: Oh, okay. Um, Well, you know, it used to be easy to answer that question. It's not so easy now. Mm. Um, I am a podcast maker, uh, but with a 20-year history at the ABC, where I used to make documentaries and really focus my efforts on um, environmental documentaries, audio, of course, um, at RN, Radio National. And... I left a couple of years ago and I started a PhD. I think I'll have a PhD in podcasting. <laughs> well, podcasting for environmental communications, really, um, in a year
6: or so. you be among the first cohort to ever have a uh, qualification of that name. I
0: know. I think it's quite hilarious. And I'm also a freelancer, so uh, I'm running my own business now, making podcasts for universities and researchers and environmental organizations and, um, you know, government organizations. So it's absolutely wonderful. It's like a new lease on life and um, sheer independence. So (laughs) I rather like that. Yeah.
6: An exciting new chapter. Well, Gretchen, we've been very fortunate to have some of your work already on climactic in the past. Uh, Listeners will have heard you potentially in an interview with uh, Georgia Sheil, one of our hosts, and also in a three-part series called The Rescue Project, or The Rescuers. The Rescue Project, yeah. Um, so what listeners are hearing right now is not a preamble into a lar- larger interview with you today, but it's actually a work of yours from a few years ago. We're, g- we're going to hear a little bit about that, if you wouldn't mind. Kind of, Can you tell us a little bit about what we're going to expect and hear over the next three weeks.
0: Yeah, sure. So Hot Summerland was a series that I made over an El Nino summer between... It was the 2016-17 summer, the summer of 2016-17. And I had been doing this sort of um, engagement with the ABC audiences where I would ask them for their stories about a particular way of being in the landscape and so what I asked with this one uh, and they uploaded them to ABC Open which is no more unfortunately
6: Now it's time for Climactic Community Corner where we play voice messages sent to us on Facebook We're opening up this space for the community to share events news thoughts feelings all sorts If you've got a message to share just send it to us at Climactic Show on Facebook or hello at Climactic
7: Hi Climactic listeners, it's Marco here from Students Declare, a newly formed group of young people campaigning to get their schools and educational institutions to declare and act on the climate emergency. This Friday the 14th of February from 2 to 4.30 there will be an exciting workshop for school students at the National Climate Emergency Summit. In collaboration with fellow students across Australia, workshop facilitators Jean Hinchcliffe, Katie Thompson, Sal Whiting and I will create a roadmap for schools to declare a climate emergency and to achieve practical climate action. Tickets are free and I'd highly recommend this workshop to all school students who are keen to take climate action. So if you are a school student, parent or teacher, please let others know and I hope to see many of you at the summit this Friday. There are limited spots, so to register and find out more information, visit climateemergencysummit.org. Thanks, and over and out from Marco.
0: I asked them to tell us stories of their experience of that summer. So I, I had a big ask, which is that people would write in three times at the beginning of the summer in the middle of the summer and then at the end of the summer Mm. just observing the changes to their landscape over that period of time you know you get the most incredible stories from people uh just so profound and personal and so you know which just indicate the way that some of us are quite aware about our surroundings but also in the process of doing this people were saying well actually I've become more aware of my surroundings which was kind of a moment of yay I did what I wanted to do. (laughs) So what I wanted to do um, with with gathering these stories was show the progression of a summer and demonstrate what a climate change summer might look like Mm, mm -hmm. Um, because with an El Nino summer, you know, you expect more fires, more drought, less rain and so on. As it turns out, it actually wasn't that bad of a summer. Um, But boy, if I'd run that project this year, um, just I wasn't expecting Mm. to have a climate crisis summer quite so soon. I, I wanted people to listen to the stories and reflect on you know, what it might be like to to live through a climate crisis summer. So the whole project was really just a really gentle way of saying this is what we could experience every year. Mm. Yeah, and so it had three parts and, um, you know, to match the three periods of storytelling that people participated in. There's the beginning, there's anticipation and then there's a, a section the second episode is about fires and living through a fire environment and although that summer wasn't too bad with fire and then I wanted to reflect on drought and water and rivers so you know that's the third part to the three uh, but what you'll hear is the voice of voices of all sorts of people from very you know from just you know, next-door neighbour to experts in drought and fire um, from the weather guys to psychologists so there's all sorts of people interviewed in this and and i suppose i weave quite a sound rich documentation of the lived experience so you know i guess you can expect to be transported in some way and have memories triggered and thoughts triggered around what it is to be an australian in the summer
2: There it is. I know I just saw it. A momentary shift in the hues of the world around me, like a jolt of deja vu. I do a double take, but the fleeting waft of a nor'easter and the tangy odor of sea salt has gone. Regardless, my inner child begins jumping. Outwardly, a smile slaps my face. Soon, Not soon enough. I still must drape a cardigan over the back of my chair at work. I do not trust my vision just yet. Conversely, students enter my classroom, lethargic and whining about how hot it is, and why can't this school have air conditioning? Sympathy escapes me. I could not be more pleased they are sweating on their overworked chairs. It means summer is coming. Anticipation, by Natalie Lincoln, Lennox Head, 2015.
0: How our spirits lift when summer's on its way. But as the Australian summer of 2015 began, across the country, people were worried. The weather maps showed an ominous, inflamed red streak of oceanic heat, pointing accusingly at us from the west coast of the USA. Back in September, Andrew Watkins was also concerned. He heads up climate prediction services at the Bureau of Meteorology and he knew the size of the El Niño system coming our way.
3: Looking out into the Pacific Ocean, El Niño is really when you warm up the tropical Pacific Ocean and at the moment we're seeing a very warm tropical Pacific Ocean. It's more than two degrees above normal And to put that in a bit of perspective, uh, the last time we saw that was 1997, 98. And so quite an exceptional event to compare it to other events you're talking about. You're talking about 1982, 83, 72, 73, 1902 Mm. or 1905. So those high temperatures cause a large scale change in our weather patterns. Effectively, normally we would expect to see some of the warmest seawater in the world, northeast of Papua New Guinea. That warm water has moved east towards South America, warmed up a little more, and that's effectively drawn the moisture away from Australia. It also has changed what's weakened off the trade winds, which might bring some more moisture off the sea into inland Australia.
0: Despite the El Nino threat, even in September last year, it was looking a bit unusual for a tiny damp patch, a strip of green along the coastal edge of New South Wales. In the end, it got double its usual serve of summer rain.
3: But at the same time, we've got a huge blob of warm water out there in the Indian Ocean more generally that we don't fully understand why it's there, but it is there, and that means that we're getting a bit of moisture coming across from the west, and to some degree, they're having a bit of a battle at the moment to control our climate.
0: But for the vast majority of the country, the whole summer was always going to be hot and dry.
3: You've got the increased chance of heat waves, you've got reduced rainfall, you've got reduced soil moisture, you've also got reduced stream flows. Those natural fire breaks such as streams suddenly become less of a fire break. And likewise, the growth that's occurred through spring and so on, if there's been really abundant grass growth, and you might be more prone to grass fires. Mm-hmm. But as far as temperatures and heatwave risk and all that sort of stuff, they definitely go up. Putting an exact number on it is, is very, very difficult.
0: So what was it like to live this anticipation of the summer to come? In October, on her veranda in Teesdale, 100 kilometers southwest of Melbourne, Polly Musgrove was feeling unsettled.
8: The breeze is coming from the southwest and is cool enough to take the edge off the heat of the midday sun. I am sitting out in the shade, under the west veranda, the dog pressed flat in the cool gravel under the swing seat, asleep. Beyond the west side of my home where I sit, on the far edge of the kitchen garden, the stone fruit trees unfurl pale green new leaves. Blossoms already changed into small green fruits, apricot, plum, pear. Another glut seems just around the corner. An October Sunday with nothing else to do except in pumpkin seeds and sunflowers for the cockatoos. I doze in the chair, hearing the distant silvery cadence of the blue wrens and the harem of tiny wives calling each other in small chirps from the safety of dense shrubs. There's a dog barking next door, a child calling out from across the valley. There is nothing to fear. Yet... There is always a whispering amongst the wallaby grasses and red gum canopy below the garden. The dry creek full of Phragmite and rabbits. In the sudden cacophony of a passing cloud of little Corellas and the way the sun fills the sky with heat and light. It makes me feel the thin walls of the green bubble I carelessly lie within feeling the inscrutable horizon and the never-ending sky like a dream behind my closed eyelids. What
0: spooks us most in summer is the possibility of fire. This new year as usual the cities emptied and the bush and beach filled with holidaymakers and locals. We were all alert to the scent of smoke. For a while Each of us stepped a little closer to the power of nature. Steve Warrington is the Deputy Chief Officer for the Country Fire Authority across Victoria. We first spoke in November as the country got its heat on, and he was really concerned.
4: So right across Queensland through New South Wales, South Australia and certainly a large portion of Victoria, not so much Tasmania, you've already got your grasslands cured to 100%. Now, what does that mean? It effectively means everything on the ground is fully dry already, which is fairly early for this time of year. The reality is if you get the right fuel load, the right weather and an ignition source, we will and do get bushfires. Already in Victoria this year, we've had over 200 bushfires, um, some of those significant. Already in Victoria this year, we've lost property. I don't mean to sound melodramatic, but it's almost like the Russian roulette-type scenario. Whereabouts in our part of the world it hits? It could be a lightning strike, it could be a a criminal activity. There is a number of ways you could start a bushfire, but where and when and what it does is totally in the lap of the gods to some extent.
0: Of course, it's not just humans affected by fire, long hot spells and low rainfall... How do birds, insects and plants react to prolonged heat stress?
5: I'm not sure that anyone's really studied that in great detail. We know, for example, a lot of birds in the height of the summer uh, call early in the mornings and then do very little calling during the rest of the day, except for a dusk period where they call again. And that's part of them telling everybody else that they're alive, they're maintaining their territories, or they survive the night. ready to go again the next day, but by and large calling takes energy, and energy can be in short supply during prolonged droughts, and so you dedicate a small amount of time to calling and then the rest of the time to either conserving energy or doing your best to find what limited food there is available.
0: I sat with ecologist David Lindenmayer on the dry forested slopes of Black Mountain in Canberra just before Christmas. He's the professor of the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the Australian National University, and one of his areas of research is how different kinds of forest react to fire, particularly in Victoria.
5: Not all bird species naturally decline during dry periods. We've seen, for example, there's a wonderful bird called the brown tree creeper, specialises on feeding on ants. And during dry periods, it actually seems to do better. Possibly because there's more open ground, you often see ants colonising those kinds of areas, and that's its food. There are many species that have moved significantly in their distributions following, for example, drought periods. So, for example, it was the 1983 drought, but the galah, which is really a dry country bird, made it all the way to the coast.
0: I see them in the heart of Sydney, in the inner west of Sydney, Galahs.
5: That's correct, that's correct. So over time there's been a shift in distribution. Sometimes it's a pulse shift, for example, after a drought. Sometimes suitable habitat's created in cities and that allows bird populations of some species to build up.
0: So when you have extreme weather events, heat waves one after another, how might that change the ecology?
5: That's a good question. Extreme weather events... Very high temperatures and, and prolonged rainfall periods have interesting effects on forests and, and animals. Some species of animals simply die. For example, the common ringtail possum is a very heat sensitive animal. And under extreme temperatures, we have on many occasions walked through the forest during the day and seen a ringtail possum basically hanging from its prehensile tail. The animal's dead, died from heat stress. But there are other things that happen in in interesting ways as well. So we know in in the Victorian wet forests, what happens there is that the the properties of the wood anatomy, the way that the cells fit together inside some of our biggest trees, the mountain ash trees, that actually changes and it makes the wood more brittle. So when trees were being cut down during the millennium drought, most of those trees ended up being pulp logs to produce paper because the wood anatomy was changing, so the recovery rate for sawlogs is very low. Most of it's used for pulp anyway, but it was an even lower recovery rate than was, was normal. And other things change in sometimes quite interesting ways. There is some thought that as carbon dioxide concentrations increase in the atmosphere over time, it will change the leaf chemistry of some of our eucalypts. And leaf chemistry, the composition of the different nutrients in eucalyptus is very important in the diets of animals like the koala and the greater glider and ringtail possums and a whole host of other animals. And so I'm anticipating we're going to see lots of ecological surprises in these kinds of ecosystems as time goes on.
0: It's funny how our collective memories can't cope with bad thoughts, the complex interwoven impacts of a shifting climate. We're in a constant state of forgetting just how bad it can be, unless we've been directly affected. Steve Warrington says he finds people are chronically unable to plan for how fire might change their lives. And we forget, one year to the next, how often the fires are now occurring.
4: The problem I have with all of this is people say, well, here they go again, the fire services is saying, oh, it's going to be another bad year. And and to some extent you could say we're guilty of that but the issue we have is getting people to understand it's what the community do themselves. The example I'll give you Gretchen and it's quite stark and hopefully I don't mean to alarm people but it will bring it home. If I look at Black Saturday in, in Victoria alone we lost 173 people uh, lost their lives on that particular day. We lost 2,000 homes on that particular day. And if I was to count up every fire truck that we had going to, rubbish bin fires, false alarms and fighting the effort, it's somewhere in the vicinity of 600, 650 trucks. So so do your own maths here, Gretchen. 2,000 homes, 600 trucks. We cannot come to every house with a fire truck or with an aircraft.
0: Do you think we're actually there, that climate change is with us now?
4: Oh, look, that's, I guess again, Gretchen, that's probably my personal opinion. And based on my experience, I've been in the fire service for over 30 years. And, you know, initially we, we would have what we would call a major fire every 10, 15 years. Uh, in Victoria alone, we had uh, 2003, we had 2006. They were both campaign fires in both the Northwest and Gippsland that went for, in one case, for, for two months, full full on for, for two months uh, New South Wales is the same, South Australia is the same, we then had obviously the 2009 fires and it looks like it's just going to become part of the natural landscape which we know does occur but seems to be occurring more frequently uh, all the scientists tell us not only frequency but the size of the events are quite uh, significant larger than than we're used to and if I look over our 100 years of our history that we've recorded uh, information so it is absolutely there
5: I look at ecosystems and populations of species communities of animals and plants that are integrating the climate signals that they get. Climate is the key factor that drives the distribution and abundance of plants and animals. It's the key thing at the the larger scale. And we see enormous changes amongst plants and animals. So what's happening is that we're seeing, for example, in the alpine country and also in the wet forests, we see uh, strong evidence of birds undertaking courtship before nesting at much earlier periods now than they were 10 or 15, 20 years ago. These are things that we see in our long-term data sets. We see animals starting to colonise places that they didn't used to do. So, for example, we see animals like the pilot bird in Victoria, animal with a beautiful call, very distinctive call. We see that bird moving up into much higher areas in alpine ash, many sites that they didn't previously occur at. And then we see other signals, like we see um, very strong signals for elevated tree mortality. So what that means is that living trees are now uh, dying in pulses that we weren't seeing 20 or 30 years ago. That's just our evidence, but there's, there's a significant body of other study that's been done by Australian ecologists and and others all around the world that are showing major changes all over the planet in terms of what the plants and animals are doing.
0: The funny thing about this summer is not everything turned out quite as predicted. Yes we got fire and it was devastating with the loss of four lives in South Australia and whole communities profoundly damaged along the Great Ocean Road in Victoria there were heat waves and fire around Perth and a huge swathe of forest that won't ever recover from the burning in western Tasmania. But from the southeastern coast of New South Wales and Victoria up to southeast Queensland, varying degrees of wet. Mary Mageau on the outskirts of Brisbane waited in vain for her El Niño summer.
9: The summer solstice has come and gone, and as the days grow shorter, our usual hot summer stretches ahead. What has become of the dreaded El Nino? We were led to believe a big one was lurking just around the corner. Instead, we've been blessed with bountiful early summer rain. Our surrounding bush is thriving. Gone are all the pale green tips of new life growth replaced by rich shades of viridescent green appearing everywhere as the rain continues to fall and nourish the land. What does appear different this year is the quality of the light. It seems to be clearer, brighter, and so intense that colors everywhere pop and sizzle. When I enter our home after time spent in the sunshine, my eyes take longer to adjust to the darker light inside. Is it only me that experiences this new phenomenon, or do others notice it too? By late March, autumn will begin its slow arrival when we experience what the new changing climate holds in store for us. In the meantime, nature is always filled with surprises, so expect the unexpected during this crazy, cool, wet summer.
3: You talk to people from Queensland and Victoria and South Australia and Tassie and they're just on and on about, oh, this El Nino slammed us. And you talk to someone from New South Wales and they're yes. kind of like, what El Nino? What El Nino? So, but in actual fact, the whole well second half of the year and into early 2016, the Indian Ocean as a whole has been warmest on record. And indeed for January, it's the, the second biggest difference from normal we've ever observed. So the simple thing is we've been getting a bit more moisture in our atmosphere from the Indian Ocean. The complicated thing is that moisture will happily just sit in the air and bubble along and not do very much unless something comes along and triggers it to condense and that might be you know, that air mixing in with a cold front uh, or some sort of disturbance in the upper levels of the atmosphere. It needs something to trigger it off.
0: But this water, this bubble of green protection on the east coast was the only place across the country. Elsewhere, it was desiccation. In spring, Western Queensland continued its soul-destroying drought. Three failed wet seasons so far, hard on the heels of the 10-year millennium drought. I called farmer Jenny Gordon in November. Her 22,000 hectare sheep property has been in the Gordon family for almost a century It's set in the broad, flat, pebbly downs country typical of Longreach at the headwaters of the ephemeral Thompson River, and it hasn't been fully stocked for well over a decade.
1: I'm a Longreach born and bred girl and a bit short of 30 years ago married and moved out to Alcantara Station, which is roughly about 90 kilometres southwest of Longreach. So we're predominantly sheep graziers. We usually run in a good season about 200 odd head of cattle.
0: What do you see when you look out your window or go and stand on your veranda?
1: Okay, so our front country here is a mixture of creeks. So we have lovely creek bed with lots of lovely trees and then you've got your open downs your Mitchell country with smatterings of white woods and bory trees and and there's sort of undulations you know the country ebbs and flows and ups and downs and we have what we call Mount Corey so it sort of sits on the horizon and is a, a little viewing pinnacle for us that we we can stare at. We have areas that a bear, and that's just that uh, soil type and everything. Um, other types of country, you have just black stubble and then we have all our scrub country, which is your mulga, your eromophilus, all that type of country.
0: And what do you hear at the moment? What do you hear in the morning and what do you hear in the evening in this very dry time?
1: Probably silence. Just You might hear the occasional quark of a crow, but really, it's just silent. There's nothing, you know, if the breeze is blowing, well, you'll be lucky enough to hear the rustling of that. But ultimately, the mornings can be quite just silence.
0: No insects?
1: No, look, we had a bit of a wave of insects probably a few weeks back, but that's sort of all gone. You can, nights you can leave your doors open and not have an influx of insects around your lights and you can sit out on your veranda with lights on and they're very, the insect. Well, is very light on as well at the moment.
0: Jenny last saw a proper rain back in early 2012, though a couple of inches fell in 2014. The skies are an endless, empty blue.
1: You know, from a photographic aspect, sometimes you can get a blue sky that can be a different blue at different times of the day and on different days. But ultimately, it's, it's blue. And then you might wake in the morning and there'll be a bit of cloud... Um, and it might look lovely and build up and then by lunch it's flattened out and gone and about this time of the day, you know, so we're looking at um, about 2, 3 o'clock Queensland time so it is, there is a white hotness out there at the moment and when it's white hot, blue is so pale, it's it's nearly opaque.
0: On the coastal fringe, the weather is different. Just think of Melbourne and its all seasons in one day. But for Jenny, the landscape and the weather have much longer sweeping timeframes.
1: A lot of the 2,000 years were a mixture of dry and, and mediocre. We called it our Band-Aid years because you'd get something in about November, December, maybe January. If you're lucky, you'd get something there and it'd be just enough to get you through to the next summer. And then mm. you'd sit there chewing your fingernails and then you'd get that Band-Aid. And then we had probably three really good years... You know, a lot of rain, feed, and then you just went bang. You know, come that 2012, January, February, you know, it stopped and that was it sort of thing.
0: Tell me how you manage the drought and the stock that you've kept. How do you engage with the
1: animals? On a fairly regular basis every day. So we're out every day feeding cattle. We're feeding hay, a molasses type lick too. They also get um, other booster sort of feeds and that them to them as well. We have trucks and the, and the utes and they're all loaded up with whatever the feeding program is. I don't think I've known our cattle so well as I've got to know them in the last three or so years. They will mob you and, and um, you know, you can pat and walk around and they're incredibly quiet.
0: We'll have to keep our fingers crossed for Jenny and the Gordon family farm, But we'll call her again in the last of this three-part series. Across the country, in Perth, Vicky Kramer was fretting. A fire had taken hold nearby and she was watching her landscape for signs of a change.
10: At 4.30pm it is still over 40 degrees. All day I've kept vigil over the gum tree on my neighbour's verge. It's my weather vane. For years, I've studied how its leaves swirl in response to the duel between land and ocean for control of the wind. On summer mornings, the easterlies rush out towards the sea and push the leaves back towards us. Then comes the lull, when neither land nor ocean is in ascendancy and there is no veil of breeze to soften the harsh stare of the sun. Today, a low-pressure trough sits to our west. The leaves on the gum hang down, still. After the sun has sunk low behind the peppermint, we venture out to the back patio. Fine white smoke seeps under clouds and across the fences. From our house, in the low of the land, I cannot see the towering pyrocumulus cloud that hangs over Waruna to the south. I know from the stream of information delivered to my phone, there's a conflagration of such intensity, it's created its own weather system. A firestorm with gusty and unpredictable winds. The fire is hot and traveling fast over a broad front the night ahead is uncertain. A humid change would help slow its spread. The northwesterly arrives as I clear the plates from the patio table. I let it wash over my face for a few moments before turning back to my evening chores. When I return outside,
0: it is gone. That night, The tiny, nearby timber town of Yarloop was largely destroyed by the fire Vicky had seen. And next, in the Hot Summer Land series, we'll be talking about fire across the country. I'm Gretchen Miller. See you then.
6: Thank you for joining us you've been listening to climactic the flagship podcast of the climactic collective a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community you can find out more about the people behind climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm we are a social enterprise podcast network and we greatly appreciate your support you can find a link to our possible where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times.
9: The Climactic Collective
6: This show is produced by Hear Media. A boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio.